podcast season two episode three this episode features an interview with my old friend t-bone who is simultaneously the most well-traveled and well-read individual that any of us is likely to meet um long-time student of philosophy specializes in uh, the study of formal logic and 25 years I think at least over the road more than 2 million miles logged he's at this point into very specialized areas of the industry that you're only really going to get in once you are the best of the best he is literally been to your hometown it's very likely that he picked up on one or two of the waitresses and it's possible that he passed out in a ditch not very far from where you live we talk about portland mostly this is where t-bone and i met many many years ago we were were running in the same circles at a particular time in retrospect now you know it was fun at the time but it didn't seem to be I guess that's what the conversation is about like could you see what Portland was really going to become at that time or was it maybe not so evident and in the second part of our conversation we sort of parlay that over into the phenomena the phenomena of polyamory and its um, its consequences. The website is goldengoatguild.net. It's goldengoatguild on twitter.com. And um, if you want to support the podcast, which you should, and I greatly appreciate those who do, find your way over to Patreon. There's a bunch of different options for what tier you you know at which you want to insert yourself within the support matrix couple of uh, mixed bag items for this opening segment before we get to the interview not sure yet what the backside of the total episode will will entail probably continuation of these i want to give you an update on the The important battleground that is the forthcoming conflict between hallucinogens and Orthodox Christianity. As well, I'm going to drop a couple of hints as to what's really going on with McCarthy's final. We don't know. Likely final. I would not be surprised, though, if he has 
not only one, but maybe a couple of aces stuffed all the way up his sleeve to be released posthumously. And I don't necessarily, well, we can be assured of collections, letters, all this sort of ephemera and memorabilia, which no doubt will be of significant concern to us here at the Warhorse. But um, also, I think he might have a, a couple of screenplays at least, and and maybe a novel or two. That's just my hunch. At least one, I would I would bet. Although, if he goes out on the passenger slash Stella Maris, that would be entirely appropriate and possible and fitting as well. So, we'll start there. Constant spoiler alert for every single episode um you know we just can't be concerned with with the laggards um if you're going to read the book then shut it off and go read the book but i think that's probably the last spoiler i'm ever going to give spoiler alert excuse me that i'll ever give i'll give constant spoilers So how to get into this? I read most of the major reviews and a handful of minor reviews. I've seen the various threads on Twitter. Most of them utterly lacking in nutritional value. So let's grab a bone and start to gnaw on it. There are a couple of instances. I think at least two, maybe as many as four. Where something is being alluded to outside of anything like a proper plot structure. That has gone by the wayside probably at you know, kind of at the outset of the book. I don't think that getting stuck on the mystery of who or who is not in the plane as Bobby Western appears on the scene is at all important. It's meaningful. Maybe we'll get there in a different episode. So... In these, the whole thing is kind of a, it's interstitial. It's pulling massive amounts of information and experience from the margins of something like a plot. It's pulling on memory. It's pulling on internal dialogue. It's pulling on hallucinations or dreams or... mm, realities that can only be tapped through the interior, let's say. Wagner is mentioned 
I believe the ring cycle is mentioned. I, I know for a fact, I know that the ring cycle is mentioned. I know as well that the Ouroboros is mentioned. The hoop snake, as the man McCarthy himself refers to it, in one of these trash interviews that have showed up lately on YouTube. The Ouroboros has previously been linked to the ring cycle. The hoop snake, the snake eating its own tail, the ring, obvious. Wagner himself probably had this somewhere in mind. Being that this was a time where, uh, you know, Wagner's time, that... Um, Esotericism and the like was was all of this, you know, alchemical considerations. Um, the line between acceptable interests or you know legitimate interests, those that make money essentially, and those that didn't. You know, this was the whole purview of the, certainly the genius and the, the intellectual or the public intellectual, the writer, the artist, all that stuff was, was not off limits. Do I have any evidence for that? No, but I don't need any. So we know as, as we dive into this novel that Bobby Western, main character, if you will, kind of the main character, shares the stage with his sister. We find out real early on that they're in love, that it's tragic, and there's some seriously weird shit going on. Not surprising for a McCarthy novel, being that incest has, has been at play since the beginning of the man's career. We learn later on, though, that this love was never consummated, per se, exactly. Not that it really even matters. Um, there's definitely some allusion to the fact of Ashkenazi Jewish inbreeding. It's not. Um, it's not handled in any sort of derogatory manner, but it is certainly. It's it's topical <laughs> to the to the book, right? Um, the Jewishness of this brother and sister duo is brought up in parallel with the hyper prevalence of. Jewish intellectuals in the fields of physics and mathematics. Not necessarily of interest, but tangentially. So these are, I guess, what we would call today like secular Jews. And they seem to be operating in well, they are operating in the milieu that they're operating in, you know, dominantly uh, Christian. And this brings us to what I think is, if you take this track, you're going to get to the whole 
the actual, you're not going to get there without ex, uh, additional information. Um, but what he's done is laid a series of signposts that, if you happen to be familiar with these signposts, it's like putting a series of numbers together, you know. And you don't even have to multiply. You can just use addition to get there. So going back to Wagner's ring cycle, um, I can't claim to be you know, deeply intimate with the subject matter here. You don't need to be. You have a set of characters in, you know, what's, it's, uh, it's like musical theater, musical myth-telling, if you will. And what Wagner's done is actually just pulled up a bunch of the old myths. And, and by that I mean Scandinavian, excuse me, Nordic myths. And he's rejiggered them a little bit. You, as an avid warhorse absorber, are probably familiar with with some of the players. Um, I think Odin is in there. Freya is, you know, kind of kind of one of the main goddesses figures. She's, and here here is a crucial bit I think to understand the book. She is to. She's the analog of Mary in the Christian framework. All right. Stella Maris, the star of Mar, Maris meaning ocean in Latin. This, this is um, an instantiation of Mary within the Catholic particularized framework she is favored by sailors seagoers seafarers what have you Stella Maris is it there's a lot of different you know ways that you can refer to I guess in the same way you can refer to Jesus in several different ways son of God um, son of man the logos the son the Christ Christ, Jesus, Jesus Christ, etc., etc. Jesus of Nazareth, on and on and on and on. So Freya, who is this analog, if you will, to Mary, has a brother named Fro, F-R-O-H in some spellings. Fro, in some versions of his story has you know these things are somewhat intricate and complicated and contentious the wind is picking up I gotta say once again forces of darkness are hounding me I fled last year in season one found refuge I am at this moment, as always, surrounded by not only my weaponry, not only my recording equipment, but a whole hodgepodge of various foodstuffs, including, and notwithstanding here, uh, several frozen packets of breast milk 
uh, which are essential to today's mission. So keep that in mind. All right, back to Fro. It appears that, you know, Fro is often mm, going to forget the term. There's a technical literary term where you can kind of merge various characters in, in certain ways. But he, let's just use that, merged with other characters. And I think this is what happens in the ring cycle. There's one character in particular who is given to dive for the ring. This is ultimately the ring of power as we know it from the Tolkien universe. Same idea. One ring to bind them. And again, this notion itself is, while it seems a sort of ancillary bit of information, I do not think at, in any way is exempt from your interpretation with the passenger. How I would get you there is to jump you over to the various mentions of Wittgenstein within the McCarthy's framework. So the story, the ring cycle, I, re I think the sister, um, which would either be Freya or one of these sort of like analogical you know, extensions of Freya within the mythopoetic interpretive lens than, that, you, that you need to approach all this stuff with. Um, McCarthy is not unfair with, with his truths. He's simply not... One, he knows that 99.8% of everyone who actually reads the book, which is probably only less than 1% of the total population that could read the book, uh, you know, this initial segment may or may not care or be gifted with the capacities with which to unravel what he's doing. In my opinion, it is and has always been the way of the true writer. That means novelist, that means songwriter, that means poet, bard, what have you. There, there are in operation two levels an esoteric and an exoteric. And simply knowing that fact probably puts you into a very elite echelon. Uh, sad, sad to say. My supposition would be that that understanding, that there is, you know, a higher level of cognitive or, let's say, intellectual understanding that is attainable by men through, well, a number of ways. Education and experience probably being the main ones. Uh, and in, in experience, I would include, include adventure, you know, which can lead to itself forms of revelation. I would cite here Joseph Conrad. 
as evidence of, of that argument. So just to wrap it up, if for those who have read the book and are major, you know, you're obviously on the um, esoteric side of things. You, you, you see the parallel between this. So the brother and sister are uh, in myths, we know, and among gods, they're always fucking. And, or they're in love, you know, one or the other or both. And this is the case, of course, with Bobby Western and his sister, who goes by several names. Once again, um, you know, she changes her own name. She's Alice at one point, you know, which is this is all just like it's it's McCarthy's so good that he he knows you're going to take and or you can at least appreciate the Alice in Wonderland sort of um, illusion here. That's the thing, though. It's almost as if he's so good that he knows it'll probably be 10 or 15 or more years until maybe one of you guys, you know, goes and gets a PhD and can steal my material and put out something more definitive in in terms of um, some secondary literature. It's a red herring, and it's also not, right? But it's just uh, a sort of pedestrian level of of interpretation um, available. Maybe another way to see what he's doing is to say he's writing at two, three, four, or five different levels. Um, Hell, you know, C.S. Lewis, children's books you know, and even as a kid, you kind of intuit that there's another level to this. Getting in that level uh, is kind of the, the whole point of the warhorse. It's kind of the whole point of um, if I have something like a body of work, you know, it's probably what, it, what it's about. Certainly it's a, it's a mainstay interest, if nothing else. So, The sister in the ring cycle has stolen the ring of power, which has caused the brother to need to dive. All right, so one thing that you need to know, which you, if you're a novelist or if you are just a, the kind of fellow who takes movie watching, you know, beyond something like. Uh, passive entertainment, you're probably hip to the fact that the mar, the ocean, the deep water, the black water, this has always been a, a symbol for, well, several different things. Uh, oftentimes, it's, it's femininity in general. Oftentimes, it is it, 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 emotion or passion, the the unknown, the potential within, say, the opposite of pure logic, for things like monsters, but things also like lost cities, things like gold, things like mermaids, uh, lost treasure, 
what have you. That is, you know, later picked up and as we've referred to before, it's tucked in with the Arthurian legends and whatnot, the grail, uh, where it, it kind of becomes a dark wood. Meaning like the dark timber, the, the scary forest is where you're going to have to go to find what you need to find. So Bobby Western, as you recall, is he's not tasked. He volunteers to take this job, this contract job, because he is a deep sea diver, a, an underwater welder. And he takes a job out on a rig, I, apparently in the Gulf somewhere. Gets out there, and it's a fucked... The, the guys who know uh, on his crew advise him against it. Due to his particular kind of uh, psychology at the time, which is bordering on despair, but also there's this classic recklessness that a lot of people don't realize is inherent to most if not all interesting complicated main characters whether that's an adventure novel or whether that's just some cerebral you know movie you're watching that that recklessness may come into the way that the guy does business or runs his relationships or what have you but there's a you know, and oftentimes this is going to be chalked up to, well, the guy's having a hard time, so he's kind of making poor choices or whatever. Yeah, I mean, that's, again, one level of looking at it. But with Bobby, you have, what you really have to try to miss is this um, abiding love for the edge. You know, he, we learned that he was a race car driver, that he was um, a bluegrass mandolin player, like an extraordinaire, which tells me and should tell you if you thought about it, that you are screaming down the road of, you know, the road of the rhythm um, as, as a bluegrass player, particularly on the mandolin. I mean, you're, you're, you're riding this rhythm and you're injecting your particularly your solo obviously if that's what you're what you're doing but wherever bluegrass is moving so fast that it it is much like racing or it, it's it's kind of like an, a high wire act in a way and that's the least right and then he's this very particular race car driver in in europe which doesn't turn out so then he becomes a, an underwater welder, which we know is a pretty dangerous occupation. So, all this said, he winds up on this rig, and the rig is abandoned. And we're told along the way that Bobby is... Let's check our time here. I might be... Damn, 26 minutes. Okay, we're not going to get to the other thing. That's fine. We'll, we'll uh, fill out this section with, with this piece. So, he gets out to the rig, and... The rig, it, the way it's written, it, it seems as if portion of the rig itself is underwater. Um, 
Well, oftentimes you see them and they're just sort of platforms. And that may be the case, that may not be the case, but he definitely goes into the bowels of the structure. And he has a sense that somebody else is there with him. And uh, do we see the parallels with, even if they are um, oblique is the wrong word, again, they're almost topical in the way that the elements are, are composed or are reconfigured from what would be like an originating source material. Maybe it's the ring cycle, maybe it's something else. The other point though, before we get stuck into Bobby on the rig, diving for the ring. And if we wanted to, we can. I mean, the ring is something like his sister. You know, it's something like uh, this union that he cannot have that would actually bring about some type of uh, unity to him, a kind of satisfaction, but he can't have it. In addition to, there's a whole bunch of other stuff we can grab, but the, for this segment, the other one I want to grab is even kind of more obscure, more passing. Like, I, I, don't, I haven't seen anybody else mention it. There is a, what seems to be a fragment of memory that is referred to in the novel in the form of like stolen snippets of dialogue from something that actually happened or may have not happened that was almost it would it would seem almost that it was the the dream dreamed by the two the brother and the sister and this i'm referring here to these passages where the sister is wearing a a white gown they're in some sort of quarry like like a rock wall, and she is performing something like um, like a dance or a play or the like. It's never that, I, I do not recall anywhere, I, I've only gone through the book once, but I don't remember anything overt as to, okay, that's what happened. So what do we take from this? Well, you can take from a lot of different, you can take a lot of stuff, but where where I'm uh, as as the um, the yoga instructors might say, or your uh, your acupuncturist might tell you, you know, where I'm sitting with it right now is that this was a moment outside of block time consensus reality, which is where the character of the sister is constantly pushing um, her, you know, her genius, her madness, the, the confluence of these two or whatever have 
come together in such a way that McCarthy wants you to understand that there is no certainty here. There is no safety here with this is really happening and this is not, this is really not happening. I'm hallucinating. And um, the fact that in the ring cycle, the sister takes the ring is very telling. Um, so I will, why is it very telling? Well, because she is the one who, who ultimately uh, takes the dirt nap. Even though, you know, this choice of hers is made evidently in, with the belief that her brother is dead. So, uh, 32 minutes. Will I pick this up after um, this interview with T-Bone? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. We'll see. Without further ado, here is uh, commentary between myself and my old friend regarding Portland, American Collapse, and Paulie Amory. Non-subscribers, get your asses over to Patreon, drop a couple of bucks, and um, yeah, so I will go more into Passenger. Maybe that'll be the, the lure to bring you into the Patreon trap. Hope you enjoy it. I uh, really appreciate the support. I hit Portland at the 1975 mark and you hit portland at what again very late 99 i think it was like right i don't think i was in portland for new years i think i was in los angeles on a road trip on my way to portland and then we were there my girlfriend and i had rolled into town we were there to help run an art gallery with a friend we did that for seven or eight months before it collapsed and then I hit the road and I was there on and off for the next de nine years because I think I left in late 2009 so I was there for about 10 years okay yeah but like I said like the writing was on the wall by 2009 you know I was and if I remember correctly the worst of the um fallout from the collapse of Lehman Brothers and the real estate market. I mean, I was already under duress financially, so like leaving was just a better option than trying to slug it out, you know, with a bunch of stuffed shirt hipster money people. So And when was the last time that you you visited? Of, you know, recently. Two early 2000, early 2021. Um, I guess maybe March 2021. I had been in and out of the city, you know, because I think I stayed out of Portland between 2014, between 2014 and 2018 when I came to visit you. Uh, yeah. I think it was 2018. might have been 19. No, it was 18. Yeah. Uh, 
So, and I had come back a couple times, but you know, our insurance company had cut our cargo insurance. And so even though they couldn't prevent us from going there, it became a lost cause business-wise because of the freight theft and vandalism. So, and the truck stops were all, like I said, you know, overrun by addicts and degenerates and drifters. And it was just, yeah, I said, no, not, not doing it anymore. So. <laughs> Which is really saying something <laughs> yeah, for a like, guy who... I'm not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and I live around that stuff. You know, like. Yeah, exactly. Oh. All right, yeah, I know so my way around we, it. And... I was going to ask, when you... When you arrived, uh, 99 or 2000-ish, uh, what did you find that you, you know, you thought was special enough to, to investigate further or unique or different? Well, I didn't really know much about the city. I had a couple friends in, in the art, you know, the, the city had been pulling in people in the arts for probably a decade and, I ended up there because my friend scored a lease on a place that was downtown in what is now the Pearl District. And we had really cheap rent, and all we had to do was put on 10 art shows a month, as long as it was original art, it wasn't commercial or whatever. Um, <clears throat> it was primitive, but it was very free. And the city, when I landed there, I knew nothing about it. I knew that it was cold and rainy in the winter. I didn't know anything about the city's history and politics, the hippies. I didn't know anything about the industry, especially with schnitzer and aluminum and, and all that, that's I was totally oblivious to all of it. I think the closest I knew about any of that was, you know, some Ken Kesey stuff. And But that was all in the back of my mind. The first experience I had was, you know, prior to real city maps and, you know, that junction, you know, the 405 that comes around downtown, uh, the exits back then, you know, they've cleaned it up a lot. But it used to feel like you were in a really tight, congested city you got off on the wrong ramp. There was no on-ramp back on. You had to know your way around. There were all these one-way streets. And all of downtown felt like... It felt like what I thought Chicago or New York was like back in the 70s. Um, there were actual heroin addicts passed out in drive, you know, little, you know, sidewalks and whatnot. And we stopped because I had gotten lost. And I we stopped. I drove down Everett. We realized that we had missed our turn. And I took a left. Is that a left? And I stopped at the first rest, what I thought was a restaurant. And I walked into the Magic Garden Strip Club. And I felt like I had walked into a Tom Waits song at that moment. Um, and so that at that moment, I knew that I was involved in something that was, very, to me, very exotic. And um, in that first year, it, felt, it was like that all the time. Everything was novel. There were very few rules. Um, everybody there was in a good mood, there for the creativity. Um, work was easy to find if you were competent. And being from the Midwest, that you know that's the baseline. If you're not competent in the Midwest, then you're ostracized to the point of migration. So, so the city had that vibe going on. You could use all kinds. The amount of things you could do back then were, 
it felt a lot like Savannah, Georgia, the previous decade, um, with SCAD appropriating vast swaths of you know abandoned real estate and a lot of the same things were happening like i remember this kid did this art show for us and and all he had done was make wind chimes out of gun parts confiscated by the portland police uh which at the time i thought was incredibly novel you know um so there's a there was a lot of that energy going around um but even basic things like the shape of the city, the layout of the city, the and the industrial port city, even though you're not on the ocean. Like, all of that stuff felt novel and exciting, uh, you know, for somebody in their early 20s. You know, you'd buy a beer and some... No, you'd buy a shot and somebody would ask you what you wanted as your chaser and I didn't know how to answer. What the hell are they talking about? You know? You could pay by check uh, <laughs> for your bar tab. That was... That, that hadn't happened in the rest of the country in like three or four decades so yeah it felt like i'd walked into like this time capsule um and there was all that stuff to exploit so i don't know if that exactly answered your question we did so you you left in 2009 and i left in uh not, I guess, around the same time. Um, and I returned in, like you say, 2018. And I think that the arts money that you mentioned, the entire idea, uh, and I was never an really, you know, an art guy. I think I made it to a couple such functions over the years but I think that all of that was completely devoured by 2018 by developers and big California money from what I could well probably money from all sorts of places but on a personal level um I guess going back to when you and I crossed paths, there were still some pretty good areas. I mean, we lived in maybe the, well, I don't know now, but it felt like, it felt at the time like the last sweet uh, little moment of, of, you know, white gentrification and exploitation of, of whatever there was to to grab which I'm speaking of the Mississippi district (laughs) for anybody that may be aware of it, but that was a lot of fun and it was like perfectly placed for, for all manner of, uh, debauchery and hijinks. (laughs) We could deploy to any kind of hijinks or debauchery anywhere in the city. Yeah. And (laughs) exactly. And, and safely escape back to the, um, but I noticed, you know, uh, I took a little tour through that area in 2018, and I didn't look up housing prices. But I we don't need to mention his name, but do you recall, uh, I think he paid like 400 for that house. 
Yeah, um, in fact, I had been his roommate before that, and and I remember the conversations about about whether or not it was going to be because it, he was going to get broken if he didn't if he if he didn't yeah. pull it off. And yeah, uh, he made enough money off of that to he could have just retired, you know. Even in the condition that house was yeah. in, I mean, you remember the yard with the aloe plants and <laughs> I mean. Yeah. yeah, his his I mean, that his carriage, annual that carriage house, the carriage house was basically falling down, and and he still got mm-hmm. way over a million for it, you know, way over, so tax free. Yeah, way over it. <laughs> mm-hmm. His annual maintenance budget was something like seventy five dollars, um, <laughs> in terms of what he put back into the house. It was just fucking <laughs> <was> no wreck. <laughs> No, it was, it was, hey, hey, Thomas, go and, go and fix the toilet. Okay. Can you buy yeah. the wax seal? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, they were good times, though. I mean, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, I think you, uh, yeah. to go back, I think no you were question. right about, uh, that was the, the last bastion of the old Portland. I think there were a couple pockets. Mm-hmm. Like, when I, when I ended up back there. I ended up back there for like a year, and um, and, and and I totally failed on reintegrating uh, after coming back from New York. And I mean, everything was depressed. There was no work. You had to stand in line for like any kind of job interview for like a day, and rent was still you know half your income. It was ridiculous. Um, and I saw a, a glimmer. There were couple holdouts but you're talking about like four or five houses opposed to an entire neighborhood the rest of it was um stuffed shirts yeah yeah what i guess today would be a lap called a laptop job although i don't think that really existed back then you know um so yeah but you know we need another name for whatever the phenomenon is because it's not just gentrification. It's one thing to to gentrify something, especially if if the the people who are presently in that neighborhood have abdicated their agency as citizens, as neighbors, as whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what happened? What happens in in when trendy people get involved? They latch onto the artist. The artist gets squeezed out. You know, it's a familiar trope. Um, but it's been so back when it's when I first saw it happen in Vermont in the mid nineties, it, it wasn't gentrification. It was, there was a commercial aspect to it that was just like this hegemonic something or other. Sorry about that. My neighbor has a, an in-ground gun range and is actually testing stuff. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I thought you were under assault. It's, it's one of the it's one of the blessings of living in the country is is you get wild hogs and coyotes and your neighbor has you know I think it's like three hundred meters uh, and he dug out a trench that's three hundred meters uh, long about nine feet deep and he just goes out and tests his hand loaded deer rifle so. That's nice. the kind of freedom I appreciate. <laughs> no zoning. <laughs> um, yeah, we need another name for 
because I, you know, I remember when I was in Portland hanging out with the anarchists, and they would call all the things neoliberal hegemony, whatever Chomsky was saying at the time, they would just parrot. But I, I see the same phenomenon showing up in vacant Midwestern places where there wasn't much of a culture to begin with because it was transitory to begin with or it was migrant to begin with you know like in the high plains iowa you know like they would import all these people to harvest and then when the machines displaced them they still had the town square but now there weren't so many people to fill it and um so now instead of gentrif you know 25 dollar personal pan pizzas that are r rolled by hand by some liberal arts graduate uh who's unemployable and ignorant they have some, you know, they've got a, a commercial strip mall franchise version of it, like Jimmy John's. So they have this mm -hmm. styrocrete, you know, building on the edge of town, and they don't even bother rehabilitating the buildings on the square. So I, I don't know what that phenomenon is. Maybe we just, just maybe there needs to be another term for it. Uh, I wouldn't call it glo globalism. I mean, globalism is like a picture that my dad sent me his trip to Scotland. In the background, I saw a sign for Pizza Hut. And I thought, it, that just needs to be set on fire. You know, like, I don't want to go to Scotland and see a Pizza Hut. Uh, the homogenization, though. Yeah. Uh, the, the Taylorism, you know, a lot of people... I hear the term globo homo thrown around, and I thought, you know, this was just Taylorism a hundred years ago uh, when, when the Model T got going. Um, and factories got streamlined, and people started to formalize and standardize all sorts of industrial standards to make manufacturing, you know, what in the current parlance would be called cross-platform. Cross um, they standardized all that stuff, and maybe it needed to be back then, but now, you know, it's kind of weird to drive around the country and to run into people from somewhere else, just like I'm from somewhere else, and they're putting up a Dollar General, and they've been on the road for seven months. They just get pushed to the next job site, and they're all putting up Dollar General, and it's a steel building with styrofoam walls, and that kind of standardization is, when it becomes ubiquitous, that globo homo thing kind of makes sense, but the 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 menace. I, I come back to that that quote by Miwash where he says, "No one understands the 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 menace of total rationalism that the Soviets mm -hmm. tried to impose on their satellite." And I think, wow, we're just doing it, except we're doing it through corporations and NGOs, you know. So everybody from every HR yeah. department can talk to everybody from every other HR department, but they're all totally inhuman people. <laughs> you know, the irony yeah. on the the irony on that is just off the charts. So um, I think this is yeah, to some, go back to Portland. Uh, well, some people call the phenomena uh, something like the Brazilification or the Mexification um, of America. Specifically, where the Dollar General is is like a qualitative. It, I mean, I, I well, I, I can't even say that. 
I have run into some people um, who would say, man, I'm really happy that the Dollar General is up the road now. And they don't have to drive that extra two minutes to get to uh, a town square where you could get that hand-rolled pizza or at least, you know, uh, a hamburger that some grandma made. Something authentic. Um, I don't, it doesn't matter what we call it, but it's out here where I am in Appalachia. You know, there's like these two little oases of Asheville and Boone where you you could you can imagine that maybe life would be pretty good. Where I am here, or most of the surrounding area anyway, it's hard to fool yourself that like there's any real real substance or quality to to people's daily lives. They're literally eating fucking dinner at the dollar store or picking up <laughs> dinner at the dollar store <laughs> for their fucking family. And it, I'm like that's all I need to know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um <laughs> Yeah, I know I I know exactly what you're talking about. I It's just bad. Uh, it's just bad. It's, yeah. Uh, left Behind. I think maybe you should rewrite the entire Timothy LaHaye Left Behind <laughs> series. But it, it's it's just a description of daily life on, on, on the hilltop of an Appalachian mountain where people don't have anything to say except for, man, the Vienna sausage really sucked today. You know, like, Oh, the details. Oh, you, you know yeah. exactly what I'm talking about. Vienna sausage <laughs> is like, that's lunch. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and a, Or, yeah, deviled ham. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, buddy. Maybe, maybe a, competing, a competing dollar store comes in, but it's the dented can dollar store. <laughs> so it's all like 78 cents. <laughs> they run a sale. Like, uh, you know, like whatever the last two days of your birthday are, or the, the, the end of your birthday. Uh, that's how much it costs. So everybody in there is like, "Oh, I can't wait to get older. That way, you know, <laughs> it's cheaper." God. Oh wow. Yeah. That there is a there is. You're right though. There's some type of logic thing happening below all this. That's just truly uh, demonic and dire. Like, like how does the person even arrive at the idea? Like, oh wow. If I just get more fucked up and older, and worse off. <laughs> I'll save that uh, that for you know seventy eight cents or whatever. But um, now you're now you are right, yeah. But to me, it seems that that goes back to uh, you know, Ted Kaczynski made all these points about, and it was actually early in in uh, industrial uh, society and its future about. He doesn't say it directly. I think he just sort of. Uh, you know, it's it, it's an aside, especially when he's talking about like the slaves in 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 the South prior to the Civil War. Like he said at one point, he didn't mean to sneer at their condition. What he did mean to sneer at was they aren't doing anything about it. Like if you abdicate that yeah. that, that part of your agency, then you, your your life terminates in in you know uh, expired 
Vienna sausage from the dollar store. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's where it ends. And that was kind of the point you were making yeah. about, I think, the... If we go back to Portland, and um, I keep wanting to throw this fact into people's heads who may be listening. Oh, did I lose you? I lost your no, video. No, I'm still here anyway. and I can hear you. Okay, yeah, your video we'll just carry just through. Cut out. Okay. Yeah. Um, so these gentrif or whatever, there. Portland is, as far as I know, one of the very, very few cities in America that is on a par with some of the European cities in terms of its, uh, you know, just say walkability. But the point is, it's not really so much walkability as you do have a local grocery store in your neighborhood. So while the city itself is made into these quadrants, this is for the benefit of uh, the audience, uh, with a fifth quadrant, it is it's broken down further into all these various neighborhoods and virtually every neighborhood does have something like uh, grocery gas bar and a park and some other places that you could, you could hang out. And I, I like as the guy from 1975, I mean, I do remember my parents and grandparents telling stories about, uh, going to this park or or to that restaurant and then back to the house or the apartment or wherever they lived and uh, I mean we 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 probably each experienced that to some degree in that last moment um, and I'm sure people would say you know what the fuck are you talking about I can still go to New Seasons Andy and then walk over to Laurelhurst Park but you really can't um, you, you probably could up till the COVID era, but my understanding now is that that agency um, point that I think you're you're returning to, you know, it, there there wasn't really any agency even in our era. It was kind of like you said. Well, I, I mean, I recall kind of an understanding that it was temporary, whether it was going to be corporations or just being priced out or everything just got overrun by dipshits. I think you're right in that what really happened was uh, the guy again in like who bought a house by the Kennedy school, let's say, you know, right up there from Alberta in this super sweet little area. And Mm. is that guy really going to let go of his house? Probably not. Is he really going to do anything about, maybe making those neighborhoods safe again for if he has kids or his neighbors or himself. I, I don't want to mean, you know, I don't want to put this idea. You tell me, am I, am I on the right track? Do these people have agency? There's a couple. Well, no, I, I think, no. In fact, I think that the particular brand of liberalism that was the, uh, for lack of a better term, the core of the political consensus in Portland. Yeah. Uh, I think that became, if it wasn't always corrupt, and I guess that's a separate subject, um, it seems to me that that was the core of the the people's personality, and therefore it was some spiritual thing to them. And I think, no, liberalism was 
a political solution to a practical problem and uh, a, a practical problem that involved guns, knives, all kinds of stuff. And to import that into <clears throat> or, or make it synonymous with a personal philosophy is just uh, suicide. So uh, you can never stand up for yourself without being guilty of the very sins you claim to stand against, uh, which is worse than hypocrisy, in my opinion. And I, so I don't think that a lot of the people who did a lot of that stuff are even capable of changing it. So even abdicating their agency, they just maybe didn't even have it to begin with. Uh, and maybe, or maybe a lot of them inherited something and just went along mm -hmm. with it the same way that any religious wacko inherits something and goes along with it. Um, mm -hmm. As far as making their city safe again for kids or returning it to the, you know, what I remember it as, I, that's a, that is long gone. Um, the mm -hmm. army's already in the gates and it's, it's trash in your institutions and that, I mean, that's gone. It'll become something different. But, you know, I remember hanging out in the Tenderloin in the early 2000s, and I remember the filth and how awful it was. And I think, wow, now most of Portland looks like the Tenderloin. And, like, the people there just don't seem to, they're not going to come around. So they're always going to have, there's, always, there's a mental blockage somewhere there where, and you, you know it when you see it, you'll generalize and you know you're making an abstraction and a generalization, and the person always comes up with, well, I don't know, here's this example, and that that counterfactual or counterexample supposedly refutes everything you just said. And I think as long as you have a plurality of people in a small area with no exogenous force acting against them, they're not going to change. The same could be said for any conservatives, like the Mormon, polygamists, uh, pick a pick a pick an echo chamber you know when you're talking about a million and a half people that all think the same thing and they get confused every day as to why you know they have so many problems and they just keep throwing gas on the fire i just give up just let it go let it go i know that may be easy for me to say <laughs> it's not my hometown so i'm sorry but uh now that's not that's not coming back you know and we haven't even touched on the social things because it's, you know, like I remember when I had read your book the first time, I thought, where is he getting this idea that foreign nationals would be camped out on our city streets? And then being in Portland, I remember seeing East Africans, Northeast Africans, got people from, you know, Somalia, Eritrea, and they were camped out around the Oregonian press building in camping kit that was way better than mine. And I thought, wow, Andy saw that all the way back then. So, yeah, that's gone, you know. Yeah. So. Well, speaking of the social, uh, let's take, we're almost at a half hour. Let's take a break. And then uh, I think we have some audio things, so we might try and fix that. And then we'll be right back. Sound good? Yeah, sure. Okay. 